Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoag's to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Today I'm talking to Rachel Griffiths and she's probably one of Australia's most revered and best-known talents. You'd probably remember her from the 1994 classic Aussie movie on Muriel's Wedding with Tony Collette. That was her calling card, I think, to Hollywood. And then she got an Oscar nomination for a movie called Hillary and Jackie. And she's done a ton of work since then, including the TV shows Six Feet Under and Brothers and Sisters. And also, of course, just recently, opposite Mel Gibson in Hacksaw Ridge. Rachel and I go way back. Actually, before I even met Rachel, her mum was my art teacher at our Catholic girls' school, Star of the Sea. And then when I first met Rachel, when she came over to do press for Muriel's wedding, I was really surprised to find out she actually knew who I was because everybody at my school had heard about the girl who'd gone to Hollywood. So it was kind of fun that Rachel and I got to reconnect and and hang out in Hollywood. Rachel's incredible. The way she's had these three kids, I've watched them, you know, all come into the world and her and Andy are great parents and she just somehow manages to make it look really easy and has this incredible sort of easygoing way about her. She's a big star to a lot of people and yet, you know, when you meet her with her kids, you would never know it. My chat with Rachel was in a little guest house in the back of a Beverly Hills mansion um, belonging to one of her best friends where Rachel stays. Rachel's very much like somebody who would rather stay with mates in Hollywood than in a big fancy hotel. She's very the opposite of what you think of with uh, movie stars and she just uh, wants to hang out with her friends. So it was a great chance for me to go over and, and sit out on the lawn outside her guest house and catch up with her life. Rachel Griffiths with an S. With an S. Sure you know, I right. never knew how to pronounce that myself. And I was uh, I was sitting in a pub in Wales and I said, my, my name's Rachel Griffiths. And he says, you know, I'm going to do a terrible accent right now, of which I'll be slaughtered by any Welsh people that hear this. You know how to be saying the S there? I'm like, yeah, Rachel Griffiths. And they're like, no, no. <laughs> they're like, the double F is where you break the word. This old man said, your name is Rachel Griffiths. I'm sounding actually Indian. So my name is Griffiths. Well, I saw you uh, recently at the Australian Oscar nominees reception and I was thinking about, you know, all those years ago, your big Oscar nomination. There weren't that many Australians to party with back then, also getting nominated alongside you. Go back to that experience and, and what was it like for you at that time as an Australian actress getting an Oscar nomination? Um... Oh, look, you know, for a kind of, you know, insecure late bloomer, it was definitely a huge, you know, thumbs up. And I had, um, when I made the commitment to myself to become an actor, I'd given myself a deadline because I'm such a worrywart and I look, I, I mutilate the joy out of almost any great offer I've ever been given with all the things that could go wrong. <laughs> And in order to kind of give myself a break from that habit, I said to myself, just go for it. Do not question it until you're 30. And at 30, you can have a review. At 30, you can say, you know, am I making money? Is this using, you know, my skills? Is it sending me nuts? You know, is it, is, is it, is it allowing me to grow as a, as a, into an adult woman? 
Um, so that nomination kind of came in, I think, a year before my 30th birthday. Um, so it was, it was like, okay, that's good. I think the review's going to go, my performance review's <laughs> looking good up with human resources. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty funny. But the actual... Um, you know, the actual Oscar experience is, yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing. What kind of other thing? Oh, I, I honestly think I would rather, like, demo a shed with, like, ten lesbians than be on a red carpet with perfect nails. And it's just, it really, I mean, you kind of fake it and you say, yeah, no, I'm really, really interested in what I'm wearing. I don't think I had the confidence then to turn around to Joan Rivers and say, ask me more. You know, ask me more. But at the time, I just couldn't see a place for that, you know, at that moment in Hollywood grooming. <laughs> it was all about the grooming. I was like, I thought it was about the movies. And you're like, no, it's about your grooming and what parts of your vagina you waxed. You're like, God, I really thought it was about putting the spotlight on the human condition. <laughs> Well, let's go back to your early days. Oh, we have some wonderful garbage truck or something in the background here, but that's okay because it's all about we're outside and we, you know. So I thought you were born and raised in Melbourne, but then I was doing some research last night and discovered you didn't make it to Melbourne until you were, what, five years old? Something like that. Give me a little bit of a background on how it all... My father's people are Queenslanders. You know, I say that's the kind of salty side of my personality. It's the (laughs) I want to be swimming in warm water with sharks personality, uh, which is definitely under that cultured Melbournean woman feel. But we would go back every holiday, so you know, to the Gold Coast. So when I went back to Pauper Spit, it was, it, was, it was a return to my roots. So how did you end up in Melbourne then? It's my mother's town. So like any good woman after the birth of her third child, it's not going to be long before she returns to live on the block of her mother, which is exactly what we did. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, what I did uh, when Clementine was three by returning back. It's like, yeah, three kids, I just want to be near my mum. And um, did you always feel, like a lot of people say, kids, uh, you know, they were performing when they came out of the womb. Did you always feel that you were going to have a career in the arts somewhere? I don't know. It's a a hard one. I come from a family of teachers, so even when I went to drama school, I went to study to be a drama teacher because that was the kind of respectable and sensible way to pursue your passion, I guess, as a as an amateur and um, as a lover of your field more than actually, you know, having that risk of being an artist. So, you know, for me, the challenge was moving to somebody who thought about it, taught and liberated it in others to actually doing it, being a doer. And then you ended up with the woolly jumpers in Mm -hmm. Geelong. How did that happen? Um, Well, there were a couple of regional theatre companies and theatre for school companies still very active at that time and you know my drama school wasn't the kind of where the William Morris agent calls you because they heard that you were incredible at your agent's day we just went that (laughs) you know we were like you know putting together weird cabaret shows for the Adelaide Fringe Festival and it was very much a 
content generator because no one is calling, you know, type of school, which I think in the long run has really suited me and actually has come to suit the world that we live in. But at that time was definitely a third tier type drama school because we didn't have an agent's day. So these theatre schools, were the, the, the theatre companies were fantastic because it was a uh, one-year contract and most people tended to stay for two. And they were, you know, phenomenally interesting companies. But at the time it wasn't. It was like kind of going to Siberia, which I didn't mind because I got paid for two years to just do my work every day. And in many ways, it was the best possible preparation for long contract television. You just had to turn up every day and do it and try to do it the best you could under the circumstances which might be year nine boys throwing coke cans at you you know in a really tough school on the fringes of urbania (laughs) um or incredibly polite private school girls who were so well trained they actually didn't react to anything (laughs) like (laughs) so you you know you really got to to know your audiences so were you thinking all that time i'm gonna get discovered and go to Hollywood and get an Oscar nomination. No, I just felt I was, you know, part of this kind of content generating little hubs that found a really engaging way to explore interesting ideas, interesting content and have it land in a form that was dynamic and kinesthetic and could have, I felt at that time, more impact than me delivering a 20,000 word thesis, you know, at university. I just loved being part of that from start to finish. And that's what those smaller theatre companies gave you. You know, the actors were part of the workshops. We were also, you know, on the board making decisions about who our next director would be. It was a bit of a kind of an old 70s collective. What you learn there is that no one person is the smartest person in the room. So in a way, you know, when I came to Hollywood, I brought, <laughs> I brought that mentality of like, you know, no one person is the smartest person in the room. So if you have one person saying, no, I am the smartest person in the room. You know, my instinct is to go, no, probably not. I tell the truth too. Nicole's having an affair with Chook. Muriel saw them f***ing in the laundry on your wedding day. Stick your drink up your ass, Tanya. I would rather swallow razor blades than drink with you. Oh, by the way, I'm not alone. I'm with Muriel. Muriel's wedding, when that came along, was that just to you another job or did you immediately see the potential that film had to sort of cross over into this phenomenon? No, I was just shocked that I had somehow penetrated what I thought was the mainstream just because it was a movie. Um, I didn't really know the difference between an indie movie or not, especially in Australia. They're all indie movies, really. Gallipoli was an indie movie, I guess. Um, but I had just been, so I was, uh, it was the year I came out of working with the Woolly Jumpers in which we performed, I don't know, 500 shows a year, probably sometimes three or four a day, um, for two years. And I just was very confident. And I think I had that energy of having real backbone and kind of strength as a performer. I was very confident. I probably have never been more confident as a performer because of that experience, I'd turned down a few television shows that I've, I just didn't think I could shine in, you know. It wasn't like, oh, that's not good enough for me. It was, and everyone, you know, so all the casting agents thought I was this crazy chick from Geelong who was turning down, you know, the young doctors and, um, oh, the flying doctors and some other shows. I just was like, I don't, I don't understand who that 
you know, you'd read the character's description and didn't think I could thrive. So it was more fear of failing rather than thinking I was better than it. And then when I read Muriel's Wedding, that was the first project where I read that I just thought there was no one that could do this better. And it's that feeling that I kind of need to be able to have a confidence in myself. I know Nicole Kidman, I always admire this about her. She chooses the, the, the project on the table that she's the most afraid of or the one she has no idea how to pull off. Whereas I, I'm the opposite. I will, I will pick the project that I think I'm most well cast for. And that proved to be very true with that. That proved wedding. to be true. When did you realise it was going to be, I guess, in a way, your calling card to a different kind of career? I don't know. I still, like, I, ha- I remember the night it, it aired in Cannes. And it was, I don't know, it was still, like, bizarre, not re- real to me. And I had a call from, you know, this agent, William Morris, who, unbeknownst to me, was collecting basically a generation of actors that very year. You know, and she left the message and, and I just really thought it was people from out of space trying to contact me. <laughs> and my reaction was simply to not call back. Because it just, it, do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, here's my opportunity that I've always been dreaming of. And it was like, a, you know, something out of the Muppet movie. So-and-so from the William Morris Agency. And it just, I just didn't know how to respond. So I didn't call back. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> um, probably not the greatest move of my career. Because, of course, you know, I came like a, a year later, I finally got to L.A. and, you know, that door was closed. It was like, no, I'm full, sorry. So it was all a bit crazy. And then Six Feet Under came along a few years after that. I mean, a lot of people at that time were still not sure. The Sopranos had happened, but the TV sort of golden age was still very much in its infancy. Were you hesitant at first or did it not make any difference to you, the medium? It really didn't. I've always said I'll do the best content on the table, even if it's a talking book, which, by the way, I've done. So, no, but I did, I had done a lot of, I think, I don't know, I made like 10 movies all around the world between those two events. And I don't know, I was a little travel tired. I was a little tired of that suitcase life and meeting a whole new crew in Yorkshire and then spending six really intense weeks with them and then finding myself back at the Soho house with a double gin and tonic, not remembering what my life was before I went to Yorkshire. And so I, I, I was, I actually was ready for the notion of the stability that television was offering, but it was definitely the content that, I mean, I was so obsessed with American beauty. I think I must've watched it five times. I was so enthralled with Alan Ball's voice, um, his female characters. So when I read, when I heard he was doing a pilot, I thought, wow, that's interesting. And when I read the pilot, it was just simply the best thing I'd ever read. And um, even though, you know, my character, I think had four scenes, the whole world, I just found it extraordinary. And I could already see that Alan's women were different from any other women that had ever been on television. How they were explored because they weren't explored through, you know, the patriarchal male gaze. You're so in love with the idea of Nate the good guy, Nate the hero, Nate the fucking saint with the fucking great haircut. The truth is, you would run it from real love if it ever came out. Real love? What the fuck do yeah, you know about love real with love? The shit and, and, and the neediness and the ugliness and the responsibility. You would fucking run and you know it. The only reason you stay with me is because I was never really here. They were explored through a gay man's eyes. They got to have a whole lot more sense of life and thoughts beyond 
did I come out of her vagina and do I want to have sex with her? <laughs> so I just and, – and the idea that I would be here for six months and home for six months just felt right at that time. You know, I was 30. I had, I had um, found the roles less interesting that I was being offered in movies. And um, so it wasn't a difficult choice to make. Even though I did have a lot of people saying, oh, you're going to do television. And I thought cable was inferior to network because I thought cable was like the shopping channel. <laughs> I didn't know. I'd never seen The Sopranos. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm doing cable. Um, and my friends would be like, cable, isn't that like the shopping channel? I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and you won a Golden Globe for that role. Best Supporting Actress, Television. The winner is Rachel Griffiths, Six Feet Under. Oh, my God. I'm not tanked, but now I'm legless. God. I remember was, you in the room that yeah, night. Yeah, that were, was so... That you were was, there with I mean, your it husband. Was, it's one of those crazy categories where it's impossible to win. So, And I think it's like the first award of the night or something. So it's all, also that like, oh, I just sat down. And now you can enjoy a few champagnes and not worry yeah, about... Yeah, that's true. ...making the speech later. That's true. And you were there with Andy, your husband. How yep. long had you been married at that point? I think we just a year. No, I hadn't been married. Oh. In fact, we weren't even yet engaged. I'd only met Andrew because I remember he had been, we just really started connecting and he'd been away like doing some remote walk in New Zealand and arrived and I was on the front cover of all the papers <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> it was like, oh, I can't get away from this girl. <laughs> You'd ever cross paths going to similar schools in Melbourne? No, we had. We, we met when I, I think he was 18, I was 17. He took a friend of mine to the Star of the Sea formal, which I don't really remember, but the, somewhere there is a picture of him in my living room at 18 and 17. If anyone has that photo, I want it. <laughs> the idea of the podcast is also to talk about the Australians who have left Australia and succeeded in other places. And people often say, American actors, when we talk about these, all these great Aussies, they say, what's in the water down there? Do you have any theories about why this incredible wave? I mean, mm. it was very new. You were in the first wave, really, right behind like Mel and Paul Hogan and Olivia Newton-John. Do you have any theories about what happened, why the Australians do so well? The actor training, you know, when Mel speaks for that. And I think for the younger actors, um, you know, Margot, for her training, it was uh, Margot Robbie was was on a show like, you know, Neighbours, where you just work every day. And uh, she's obviously a very smart girl and she's got really strong instincts. So when she's get, given better material, the instincts and the strength and the intelligence is, is there because you can't fake that at all. And then in another way, I just think all immigrants, all economic immigrants for opportunity, which is what we are, we are simply attracted like moths to a brighter light where we can see the opportunity to thrive in a bigger stage with bigger pay packets working with um, more often, you know, with, with our heroes because there's more heroes here. So I, I think there is something about the focus of the migrant. You know, when I came here to Six Feet Under, I'm not, there's no life work balance. I am here to do six feet under. If I had a bad day, that was everything. There was no, oh, how was work, honey? Oh, it was really hard. 
I guess I'll get up and do it again tomorrow. You know, I would go. Good exit. <laughs> I would go and beat myself up because that is what I'm here for. I'm here to make the best possible television to do the best work of my career. And if I wasn't doing that, and I do think being an immigrant, you're here to work. You are here to advance what you do. And I think us immigrants, the stakes are really, really high. And if you fail, you go home with nothing and you've got to face your family and tell them that, you know, you lost all that money. You know, you're broke. You never made it. That's a big incentive for the kids that come over just yeah. to turn up into the back into the little towns and have everyone go, oh, she tried to make it in Hollywood. Now look at her waiting tables, you know. You do have to take that risk. <laughs> and it puts the pressure on it. It puts the blowtorch to your feet. <laughs> in a moment, Rachel tells me a story that just completely blew me away about what happened to her after the birth of her third child that I don't think she's ever told anybody on the record before and was uh, not just the worst day of her life, but I think we're all very lucky that Rachel's still with us. You know, you got to come back for a second show that's also turned out to be an incredible success with Brothers and Sisters. I mean, you must feel like every everybody who does a TV show gets to have a great run like that. Was that a surprise or did you know that show had... I did feel that show, again, from the kind of breadth of the cast. The I knew that how people connected with Callista, for all the kind of messy, mean press that surrounded her, people really connect with her on screen and she's a very generous actor and she's inventive and fun and curious. Um, so I knew that was a big deal, her coming back to television and the fact that she didn't, you know, Callista never needs to work again ever in her entire life for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so for her to, to be choosing that show was very significant and it was a huge thumbs up to the showrunner who she'd worked with. And then you were also, you know, getting to hang out with Sally Field, this incredible icon for years that, like me, you must have watched on Australian well, TV was, on Flying Nun and the Sally, The Sally thing was a huge bonus because when I signed on to the pilot, you might remember it wasn't Sally Field, it was Betty Buckley. So when Sally was recast, that was kind of like Christmas coming. Tommy, what the hell is going on? I'm sterile, Mom. I can't have kids. Oh, Tommy. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. He asked Kevin to help. But he doesn't want to. No, it's not that I don't want to help. I It's his role to save the traditional American family, which is kind of strange since he's here with his boyfriend. Do you have any opinions on this, Kitty? Because I could sure use some help here. Well, you know, Kevin, I'm sorry, but I, I don't necessarily agree with your views. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. I don't think anyone is thinking about this kid but me. I'm a lawyer. I see this kind of thing every day, how it blows up in your face. Plus, we can't keep secrets in this family. How long would it be until his friends at school find out his biological dad is actually his gay uncle? Of all the madness I have ever witnessed from you, this takes the cake. Tommy, I am so sorry. I know how much it means to you to be a father. And Kevin, if you don't want to help your brother, that's your business. It's not like you're asking him to borrow his car, for God's sakes. But Mom, Sarah, you have no place to judge. No. I would have expected it from Kitty, not... Oh, thanks, Mother. And we just all fall in line. Like, if Sally told us to do something, we'd just do it. Like, why would you... <laughs> so cost? she was the matriarch, really. She really was, set. and led by example. She's an incredibly generous 
classy, beautiful, sensitive, empathetic, smart, well-prepared, diligent, phenomenal work ethic woman of her time and times yet to come. Have you ever had a bad experience with a co-star in being the opposite? Not really. Not really. And even when I had, it's actually been fun. Like I've worked with a couple of people kind of notoriously difficult and I've found it really enjoyable, (laughs) you know, and, and I think you wonder where those kind of titles come from in a way. I mean, I worked with Johnny and had a really wonderful time with as Johnny. As in Johnny Depp. In as Blow. in playing his mother. Um, as Yes. as And not that he's difficult, but he's, you know, he has his process. You know, it's not his, no one will say Johnny was an ass, but he has his process, which is, you know, curious and interesting. So I kind of like, you know, I worked with Val on, as my husband on um, Comanche Moon. And he oh, was Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer, you know, one of the all time difficult souls you know the relationship was described as very passionate and unhinged and volatile and I was as volatile and unhinged in my character as Val has ever been known to be and I just kind of embrace it you know not every actor can be Tom Hanks and be that absolutely lovely guy you want to shoot the shit with but you also did uh, your first American movie was with Julia Roberts in my best friend's wedding she was at the peak of her career and that was your first big US role how was she well uh, you know that's a very I mean she was the big star in that movie and you know I play characters she's uh you know, in no way dependent on. So, you know, in that kind of process, you go, my job on this is to bring colour and movement and hilarity and unpredictability and just to put a bit of pressure on the lead. That is my job. You know, my job isn't to be Julia's new best friend. Right. So while you were working on Brothers and Sisters, uh, you were creating this on-screen family. You were also creating this off-screen family. Your, your own family was getting bigger. You had kids in L.A., um, how was how was that, you know, to have those two things going on at the same time and raising your family here in L.A.? Well, doing a TV show like that when you have family, which wasn't as emotionally demanding, I will say, or not as psychically demanding as Six Feet Under, but it is like having a family and suddenly, you know, Celine Dion's doing Vegas. At a certain point, as a mother of two and then as a mother of three, You want to be doing Vegas. You want your big Vegas show. You don't want to be touring as a mom, a hundred venues in a round world tour with your family. It's not sustainable. So the television model, I think, you know, we're going way back to, to, to the Here's Lucy show, I think has got its head around how to support working mothers. And I had a fantastic, um, you know, producer who you know, said to me, Rachel, just let me let me in the first know when you need to feed your baby. So I was able to breastfeed. Um, same on Six Feet Under. They were, you know, really obliging. And, you know, it's not the most convenient thing when you're one of your leading actresses is suddenly 60 pounds heavier and has a huge bump. But they roll with it. <laughs> well, also, when you had your third child, You've talked about it a little bit in the press, but you went through a pretty traumatic, horrific time and you were also working on the show. Maybe you could just explain what did happen with the birth of your third child because it was at the time something very 
emotional and scary for you. And I think for most women who hear about it, nobody expects that to happen when they've had two children before. Quite effortlessly, yeah. No, you're right. And, you know, I certainly don't tell the story to, you know, elicit sympathy. I think it's a good story to tell because, you know, for any woman that is contemplating a home birth or thinks, you know, maybe the first two went well, so the third she could, which I actually was because my second was so fast. I was thinking a home birth might be a good way to do the third because to travel as, as a woman that has very, very, very fast labors, to travel in that process is hugely traumatic and, quite frankly, risky. My second birth was an hour and a half from like, mm, is this happening to, wow. you know, meet Adelaide Rose Taylor? And <laughs> Clementine was a 45-minute process from first twang of, honey, we're on. And I'd had my bags packed. I did decide to, you know, to come back to my OB and book into Cedars. But I knew that window was going to... I didn't think it would be that quick, but I knew it would be very fast. So my bags were packed by the garage. I was still two weeks early, but they'd been packed for a month. Um, my full little suitcase, you know, we had a whole birth plan in place. Um, I don't know why I didn't call an ambulance. I think in Australia you don't. You just expect your husband to drive while your feet are up on the windscreen and you're screaming in the car. So I'm just, why didn't you call an ambulance? I'm like, well, it's not a taxi service, you know. <laughs> and we, you know, instead of waiting for my friend to come over because it was two in the morning, you know, my husband got in, was about to get in the shower and I said, no, 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 don't, don't have a shower. We, we need to leave. And he said, don't you want to wait for Fiona? I said, no, no, we should leave. So I left my other two children in the house alone, called my friend and said, we've left, you know, can you head over? She was only 15 minutes away, but I felt I just had that instinct and you knew, I you knew and I was fully in labor by the time my OB met me in the car park, knowing how fast things can happen I delivered her, I think, 10 minutes later. So wow. that was, you know, without anything because I don't even think I had a room. I don't think I was registered. It was so all so fast. But as I delivered her, I ruptured. Um, I don't know why. She was a big baby. I was an old mom. Um, I'd seen my OB the day before and he said everything's looking perfect. Uh, but as he said, if things go wrong, they often go wrong on the third child. So I ruptured as I was delivering her. She was born non-responsive. I don't even know if we had time to get a fetal monitor on. But she was born completely purple and non-responsive. So she was taken away. Oh I knew I was God. in very good hands. So I should have had a huge panic at that moment. But I don't think I did. Because um, I'd felt her moving. I don't know. I just, I felt she was going to be okay. But Andrew, my husband, was, of course, you know, in a different place to that. And so he disappeared with um, Clementine, who had a full, like, squad on her so quickly, like maybe 10 seconds. She was in a thing and had things down her throat and was being put into that mode. And... And then I just started to feel very strange and I was in a huge amount of pain. And then I just remember my OB saying, you know, you're, you're bleeding a lot. Do you normally bleed a lot? I'm like, no, you know, last time I checked myself out and went to the six feet under party the day after I wrapped. <laughs> like I had Adelaide the day after I wrapped six feet under and then the next day I checked myself out and took her to the party. I just felt so great. Then it kind of all goes fuzzy, but he just said, I, you're bleeding, we need to take you upstairs. And I think even at that point I thought, oh, I'm having a, some kind of hemorrhage, which is serious, but I wasn't, 
you know, I wasn't panicked. And then I woke up 24 hours later and was, you know, told that I had ruptured and that Clementine was okay, but not, she wasn't great. She wasn't testing very well. You know, I got my head around everything that happened. I'm like, you know what? I've got three children. Thank God I was here at Cedars. And then I started bleeding again. And my husband and I had sent out to get me veal at my favorite restaurant in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and I had to call him and I said, Andrew, I'm bleeding. They're taking me back in. And that's when it was, yeah, he ran back to the hospital. It's one of those like just, just you know, left the restaurant in a huge panic. Of course. Never knew what happened to that veal. <laughs> and by the time he came to the hospital, I was in surgery and I was in surgery for 48 hours. 48 hours. So that was, you know, that was a crazy, that was a crazy time. And I think any other time in history, there's, you know, maybe even 10 years earlier, I I wouldn't have made it. Wow. You just go, wow. It, It can, when it goes wrong, it goes wrong catastrophically. Obviously, hugely grateful to my second chance and very grateful to the, um, to that hospital and the people that stayed with me for almost that entire weekend. So Thursday night, and I think, I don't know, I think I woke up Monday. I was, you know, by then it was critical but stable. But until that Monday, it was very touch and go. And then I didn't meet Clementine for another six days. Were you in the middle of filming when all this happened? I mean, No, I was due back. I was due back. I was due back, I think, in four weeks time and they extended that by two weeks but I did apparently I'm such a good girl I did when when I rang Andrew I rang Andrew and said they're taking me back to surgery and I was really afraid I couldn't get a hold of Ken that's Ken Olin Ken Olin or maybe I did call Ken I think I left a message for Ken to so tell. So wait, you call your husband, <laughs> yeah, and then you call the producer. I call of the, show. the producer of the show, and um, and say you might have to write my character pretty out. Pretty much, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to go down. Well, at least we can laugh about it. Now. I know. Now you have three healthy kids, and and you and Andrew survived that whole experience, and you decided at some point after Brothers and Sisters Rap to move back to Australia. Had that been a long time coming in your mind or was it always the plan? Was it a sudden decision? Yeah, I think it's really hard to imagine your kids growing up to be foreign to you. I don't know if that makes you racist, but (laughs) maybe, you know, like it was hard to imagine my kids not being Australian. Maybe that's like where racism lives in our own dinosaur brains. I wanted them to sound Australian and to know how to play cricket and, and, and most importantly, to know their grandparents. So it was to do that. And also I, I just felt if I signed on to another show, it's just going to be terrible because I, there's no way I could get lucky again. <laughs> and I had some stuff on my bucket list to do. So I'd always wanted to do Broadway, which I got to do the following year. I knew I kind of didn't want to be under contract again for quite a long time because I wanted to be able to respond to the needs of my family. And I thought if I stay in LA, then I'm going to be working all over the world and my family will be in Los Angeles without their family. Yeah. So that was the idea. The idea was that I would go home, we'd all go home to Melbourne and then I would do projects. And you became very popular in Australia because everybody was so excited that you were down there and you were looking 
to do things that wouldn't take you away too long, I guess, including Hacksaw Ridge too. Doing Hacksaw Ridge. I've just done some great, I've worked twice with Rob Connolly, which has been one of the joys of coming back to Australia, doing uh, the Julian Assange movie and then doing uh, more recently a great four-part Barracuda Little quirks take your fancy. Now you're living in Australia and you're juggling the needs of four other people mm. as well as yourself, That's every right. decision you make. What, what's that like? You, you're here this week taking meetings, thinking about your next big project. It must be hard every time you make a choice to, to either go towards work, which is often away from family. Yeah. No, it's appalling. <laughs> it is really appalling. And if I had, you know, $100 million in the bank, I probably wouldn't work. I'd, I'd... But you feel, don't you feel like you need to work even if it wasn't? No, about... I do. I have I, I have a burning passion to tell stories. And, um, yeah. you know, like I had such guilt leaving for three months to do When We Rise. But I said to my children on that job, this is really important. It is really an important story to tell. And mummy is so proud to be part of changing how the world treats and responds to and understands the lives of gay, lesbian, transgender people. So mummy is going to go and do this job and you will all get a new iPhone. So, there, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of bribing as well. <laughs> Rachel Griffiths, thank you so much for Griffiths. talking to us <laughs> and being a great inspiration to... Uh, a lot of people listening right now. We really appreciate your time. Well, if I can be that, that's awesome. But I'm just a crack mum trying to juggle it all. <laughs> Thanks again. No offence to crack mums around the world. <laughs> Lovely talking to you, Jenny. Thanks, Rachel. Bye, Bye, darling. It was great to catch up with my old friend, Rachel. She makes it all sound so effortless, doesn't she? I'm also incredibly humbled by her willingness to share her terrifying story about the birth of her third child, Clementine, and how close we came to losing them both. Since we spoke, Rachel's announced that she's directing her first film. It's called Ride Like a Girl and stars another of my podcast guests, Teresa Palmer, as the first female jockey to win the Melbourne Cup. I will be first in line to buy the ticket. On the next episode of Aussies in Hollywood, the Australian star of Chuck, Dexter, and the new Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale, Yvonne Strahovski, on landing in LA and being thrown straight into the deep end of Hollywood. I lived that whole year out of that one suitcase that I had, and I think I had eight different rental cars, and I think I moved about four or five times just from one place to another because I just didn't, I just kept thinking, oh, I'm going to go home now, I'm going to go home now, and then... I never went home. That's next time on Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood is recorded in LA for Podcast One. Recording is by Andrew Sink. Audio production by Alex Mitchell and Nick Slater. Produced by Tim Dunlop. Executive producer is Jamie Cho. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.